Right, we're in Galatians, and it's chapter 5. I've just lost it. And it's verse 13, and in the church Bibles, it's 1172. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Morning, everyone. So we start a new series this morning, um, as has been said a few times now, on the fruit of the Spirit. And um, I don't want to disappoint anybody, but we're not going to be looking in any detail at the individual aspects of the fruit this morning. So the lemon of love um, and the coconut of self-control. I've forgotten what the others were now. So that was brilliant. I might come back to that a bit later on. But we're not going to be looking in detail at any of those this morning. Um, but what we do need to talk about is why we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, why Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians 5. And why we're deciding to talk about it here in the Bridge Church over this next short series. Um, and I think it helps to start by illustrating um, two dangers that we face in the Christian life 
the, the fruit of the Spirit passage really, really help us with. Two dangers that actually that I've had conversations about the elders, uh, about with the elders and about with other people in church in recent weeks, months, and the last year or so, I guess. And so I think it was, that's one of the reasons I felt it was important to look at this topic of the fruit of the Spirit because of these two particular dangers we face on the Christian journey. I think to illustrate those two dangers, there's a a great story I can tell you briefly that you may have heard before. It's the story of Scylla and Charybdis. I don't know if you've heard that. It's from Greek mythology. And the story is that uh, Odysseus, as he's on his odyssey, as he's returning home, he's passing through the Straits of Messina in his boat with his soldiers and sailors. And as they're passing through the Straits, they see these two horrible monsters. On the one side is the six-headed monster of Scylla. So if you get too close to Scylla, one of her heads is going to get you and she's going to eat you alive. So you've got Scylla on the one side, and then on the other side, you've got Charybdis, who is basically a whirlpool. And such a, such a narrow path to pass between the two. That's what Odysseus and his men faced. And that was their dilemma. Do they, do they try and steer towards one of them a bit more because one of them is less dangerous? They have to try and find a safe path path through and if they stray off the straight route between the two they're either going to get eaten by Scylla or they're going to get swallowed by Charybdis and that that story from Greek mythology is often used by people when they're trying to illustrate the idea of having to choose between two terrible alternatives and steer safely between them and that's exactly what Christians often have to do with two particular issues I think in the Christian life for Paul as he writes to the Galatians you see one hazard loomed especially the the scylla, if you like, of legalism. Much of the letter to the Galatians is sternly warning the Galatians not to abandon the true gospel, the real good news of justification by faith alone. Paul has to keep saying to them, look, you're justified, you're put right with God, you're forgiven by faith alone in Jesus alone. That's it. That's what you need to do to be justified, to be forgiven. Believe in Jesus. He's defending that gospel because there were teachers in Galatia who were teaching something different, a false gospel, a corrupted so-called gospel. And the gospel they were proclaiming was that to be put right with God, to be justified, you had to believe in Jesus and his death on the cross, but you also had to do certain works of the old covenant law the law of the Old Testament. You needed to believe in Jesus, yes, but you also needed to make sure you were circumcised and followed certain other rules from the Old Testament. And he's saying to them, that's not the true gospel. That's a corruption of the gospel. That's false teaching. Chapter 1, verse 16, Galatians, you read this. So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response, no, that's the wrong verse. I've put the wrong verse down. 16. Sorry, wrong verse. Turn over to chapter 5 and verse 14, and you see the idea there. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. He's, he's mapping out to them that it's not circumcision, it's not following the rules of the old covenant law that put them right with God. It is faith in Jesus. Don't add on these rules to be put right with God. Wherever these rules are from, it's a false gospel. It's legalism. Now, we might not be tempted in exactly the same way to legalism. 
probably no one in this room is going to be tempted um, to follow the old covenant rules about circumcision and following certain food laws in order to be put right with God. But tempted towards the scylla of legalism, we definitely can be. See, there are different sort of subspecies of this monster scylla, different types of legalism. The most dangerous type of legalism is any attempt to rely on the wrong things to be put right with God or any attempt to rely on the wrong things to stay right with God. There's only one thing you can do to be right with God and that's trust in Jesus. But we might not be tempted to add old covenant laws to our faith to be put right with him. What we might be tempted to do is add New Testament commands to our faith in order to be put right with Jesus. To say, well, I can see these commands in Galatians. I can see these commands in Ephesians. I can hear these commands from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I think I need to believe in Jesus. And I need to do those up to a certain pass mark anyway in order to be put right with God. And Paul would be saying, no, you trust in Jesus to be put right with God. That's it doesn't mean there aren't commands to follow in the Christian life. We'll say more about that later on. But that's not how you're put right with God. That's legalism. We're justified by faith. So that's, that's probably the most dangerous form of legalism. A little less dangerous but very harmful is the form of legalism that lots of churches face, which is adding rules to the Christian life, adding rules to the Bible for being a really good Christian. As some of, some of us might have experienced this over the years. In previous generations, it was, if you're really a Christian, you won't go to the cinema, you won't wear makeup, you won't do X, Y, and Z. You can't find those rules in Scripture anywhere. But if you're really a good Christian, you'll follow those rules. You get the idea? And we can do that too, can't we? We can do that in the Bridge Church. You must have a half-hour devotional time every day to be a healthy Christian. You must go to church twice on Sunday. You'll struggle to do that in this church, actually, but, you know. That's a rule that some churches have. Go to church twice on a Sunday to be a good Christian. Can you find that in Scripture? No, you can't. And so to insist upon it is legalism. All Christians in every generation face some version of this danger, some subspecies of the, the, the monster Scylla who stands for legalism. And Paul is railing against his particular form of legalism in this letter. But... As he gets to this point in his letter that we had read to us this morning, he's also keenly aware of another potential hazard in the Christian voyage. He's being urging them to abandon this Jesus plus works legalism, and he's been urging them towards true freedom in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It's for freedom Christ has set us free, he's been telling them. But he's aware that there's another danger that they can steer towards as they steer away from the scylla of legalism. He knows that they might misunderstand what he's saying about freedom, and by doing so, they'll overcorrect and go too far the other way. We saw that in the first verse that was read out to us, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. He has to warn them. He says, you are called to be free, but don't misunderstand that freedom. Don't overcorrect your course. 
and steer straight into the Charybdis on the other side, the Charybdis of an anything-goes, obedience-doesn't-matter theology. You know, this has been called various things over the years in the church. It's been called license or antinomianism or licentiousness. Pick, pick the label that, that helps you the most. But it's the opposite of legalism. It's to swing right too far the other way. For example, it can happen to us because if we've come out, for example, of a really legalistic church tradition where we've been taught that you're saved by doing good works or we've been taught that it's good to add rules to Scripture to be a super-Christian, if we've come away from that, what can happen is we can develop an allergy to the very idea of obedience. We so dislike the fake obedience, the, the brittle unattractive law-keeping that we've seen, that we throw out the idea of any obedience and go too far the other way. We start to think that God's grace, God's goodness towards us, means that obedience doesn't matter. And we start dodging all the imperatives in our Bibles. Whenever we read Jesus or one of his apostles saying that we must do something or we must not do something, when we hear the writer of the Hebrews saying, do not give up meeting together, ah, that's legalism. It's not legalism understood rightly if it's God's word we're listening to. But you see, that's the other extreme we can swing towards. You see the two monsters of Scylla and Charybdis. Both these extreme steers I know that people in the bridge are aware of. Because as I said at the start, it's come up a lot in conversations with us as elders in the last year. And even conversations like, do we steer more towards the least harmful one? You know, conversations about, I think this one's less harmful, so I'm going to steer towards that one. You know, on balance, I think it's probably better if I'm going to do anything to be legalistic, so let's steer towards Scylla. Or, no, no, I, you know, legalism is so dangerous, I'm going to steer the other way towards Charybdis, and I don't mind risk being sucked down that particular whirlpool because I think it's safer to err on the side of being antinomian, licensed, just... Anything goes theology. We usually think, by the way, because we tend to steer one way or the other, we usually think we're less prone to the one that's far worse. And so we don't steer a straight path. Well, Paul sees that both those tendencies, legalism and antinomianism, Scylla and Charybdis, are of the flesh. If you look at chapter 5, verse 13. Again, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. What's he talking about? Is he talking about his body? No, he's talking about the sinful humanity that even Christians still wrestle with. You see, when, when someone becomes a Christian and, and trusts in Jesus, and Jesus only to be justified, to be forgiven, we're told in Scripture that we receive the Holy Spirit. He seals us. He comes to live within us. Jesus talks about this in the, the passage that Steve was talking about, in John 14, about the Holy Spirit being in us. Jesus says to his disciples, he will be in you, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit when we become a Christian, and, and yet we still struggle with our sinful nature because we're not perfect yet, are we? So we still struggle with our indwelling sin, but now as Christians, we have this power, this person within us, who fights against the flesh. And this moves us on to our second point and the battle that we all face as Christians. If the first point is that there are two dangers on the journey, the second point this morning is, and here's where the fruit of the Spirit starts to come in, Paul tells us how to steer 
true path. How to steer true. Praise the Lord, Paul knows what the solution is. Because you see, both Scylla and Charybdis are functions of the flesh, the sinful nature. In my sinful nature, I either want to put myself right with God or, you know, by my own works, or I just want to rebel against God and not listen to anything he has to say. And sometimes, sinner that I am, I manage to do both in one day. That's what my human nature wants to do, but Paul has a solution. And the solution is connected with that Holy Spirit who lives within us. Paul tells us where to fix our eyes. Paul tells us the path between Scylla and Charybdis, where there's a beautiful freedom and obedience that coexist. It's the hard but the good and the safe route between the two dangers. And we take that route when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is steering and not the flesh, not our sinful humanity. If I can slightly change the analogy from the voyage between Scylla and Charybdis, you've probably heard of harbour pilots or maritime pilots. Um, so you, if you're the captain of a ship, you're the one in charge of steering that ship. But sometimes when you get to particularly dangerous waters or a particularly difficult harbour, um, a pilot will come and join the ship, whether it's a harbour pilot or a maritime pilot to get you through a patch of sea or maybe through the Suez Canal. The pilot will come and, and join the ship. And what, what happens when the pilot comes and joins? Does the captain walk off and say, okay, over to you, pal? No, the captain stays on the bridge, the person whose ship it is. But the pilot knows the waters and the pilot tells the captain how to steer and helps the captain to steer. The pilot and the captain, I, well, hopefully this doesn't happen often, they don't start arguing. They work together to get through the rough seas, the tricky territory. And that's kind of a picture for what happens, not that it's an equal partnership, of course, because the Holy Spirit is God, but that's kind of a picture of what happens in the Christian life. It's, it's my Christian life. It's the life I'm living, but I don't belong to me anymore. I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and he's my harbor pilot. He's the maritime pilot who tells me how to steer in my Christian life. The way Paul puts it, to move away from the sea and the voyaging imagery, is there in verse 16. So I say, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the sinful nature. Walk by the Spirit. He phrases it differently in verses 18 and 25, but it's the same idea. He talks about being led by the Spirit. He says we live by the Spirit, verse 25. And he says that we must keep in step with the Spirit. Isn't that a lovely bunch of metaphors to speak of our relationship with the indwelling Holy Spirit as Christians. Walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step by the Spirit. The one there that's a command, an imperative, is walk by the Spirit. But all those phrases convey the idea of us being with him, under his guidance, under his influence. It's a very relational idea, this being filled with and led by and walking with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, it speaks about a way of life. It isn't something you do every now and then. He's saying, it's present tense, walk and go on walking by the Holy Spirit. There's, a, there's an ongoingness, a tempo to this. Keep on walking with the Holy Spirit. This is Holy Spirit-inspired pastoral genius on the part of Paul if you think about it isn't it and it's and it's this command that the whole of this series is going to flow from 
Think about it. Paul is writing to a bunch of recovering legalists who have wanted to follow all the old covenant laws to be put right with God. They're dying for lists of things to do. So what does he do? Well, rather than give them immediately a long list of specific things that they're going to start obsessing about, he gives them this one simple, very relational command, walk by the Spirit. And when you walk by the Spirit, he's saying, the flesh, your sinful human nature that you still battle with, the flesh won't be in control. The flesh won't be steering. The Spirit will. But he's saying to them, this command, this simple relational command, you walk by the Spirit. I'm hoping it's not just me that experiences this conflict in my Christian life on a daily basis, sometimes it feels like a minute-by-minute, second-by-second basis, between the flesh, the sinful nature that's still in me, and this need to surrender to and walk by the Holy Spirit. But that's what Paul is telling them about. He's saying to them, you're in a battle between your flesh and between the Holy Spirit. He's listed those things that were read out to us that, that characterize the flesh being at the wheel, And he's about to talk to them about what characterizes the life when the Holy Spirit is at the wheel. But he's saying to them, be real. You're in a battle here. And what you need to do, your part, is to seek to walk in step with the Holy Spirit who lives in you. The Holy Spirit will lead us into the freedom of loving obedience that brings us the joy of growing like Jesus and brings unity to his church. Yes, there's a battle in the Christian life, but as you seek to put that, the Holy Spirit at the, the steering wheel of your life, you will see these things growing and flourishing, and it won't be easy, but it will be wonderful. And it will be beautiful. And do you know why it'll be beautiful? I mean, who does that? I know I ask this regularly, don't I? But when you read those fruit of the Spirit that were read out to us, love, joy, peace, forbearance, self-control, who does it sound like? I mean, hopefully, when you think, who's that sound like? You think you're picturing people around the room and you're thinking that sounds a lot like Christian X, Christian Y. But who does it sound like in the sense that who is it that embodies that perfectly? It, it's Jesus, isn't it? This is about the Holy Spirit being in charge of my life so that he makes me holy, not holier than thou, not judgmental, holy in the sense that I get more and more like Jesus. And so one of the key questions for this series is going to be, how do you know that you're walking by the Holy Spirit, that you're being led by him? You're under his control. You've been influenced by him, piloted by him. How do you know you're steering the way the Holy Spirit is leading? Because I tell you now, if we're going to rely on our feelings and our gut to know whether we're walking by the Spirit, then that leads us into dangerous territory. That's just leading us back to relying on the flesh. How do you know you're walking by the Spirit? Well, wonderfully, Paul doesn't describe measurable performance targets. He doesn't prescribe powerful experiences. I can't stress that enough. I believe there are wonderful and powerful experiences of the Holy Spirit to be had in the Christian life, and I want more of them. I don't know about you, but that's not how Paul measures them walking by the Spirit. He doesn't say... 
Once you start showing particular abilities, then you know you're really walking with the Spirit. Once you see real power in your life and people acknowledge that power, then you know you're walking by the Spirit. None of that. His answer, fruit. He's saying if your life is rooted in this relationship with God through faith in Jesus by the Holy Spirit, if your life is rooted in him, this fruit will grow. It will come. Ultimately, it's inevitable. Because if you've got a tree with good roots that are planted deep, it will grow and you will get fruit. It's like the pears on my pear tree. The, um, the blossoms coming on the pear tree in our back garden, which is wonderful because I can't see the houses the other side now so well. So it's, it's, it's prettying up the view. And the pears are on their way. And, well, unless and until the squirrels in my garden start eating them. But I know it's a healthy pear tree because until the squirrels get them, the pears start growing on the tree because it's rooted in the right things. And the, the pears, as it grows healthily, will come. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. It's obviously not produced by my sinful nature, but it buds from the spiritual life that God implanted in me when I came to faith in Jesus. This is about what Dave preached to us about not that long ago. When Paul said in chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 20, <clears throat> I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me by his Holy Spirit. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. He might just as well have said, I live by walking by the Holy Spirit, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When I belong to Jesus, these fruit will come. This is holiness. Not holier than thouness, but a, a happy and free holiness to walk with the Spirit and produce his fruit and look more and more like Jesus. Just a, a few things to note about this fruit and a few practical thoughts about how we walk by the Spirit as I start drawing to a close. First thing to say about this fruit, and I don't want to be seen to be disagreeing with Steve Smith here, but... Um, Strictly speaking, apparently, Steve, the Greek scholars tell us that it's a singular fruit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit is one of them. I mean, having said that, I have to confess, when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking of all the different fruits. I will now be picturing the lemon of love and the coconut of self-control. I mean, that's quite helpful, actually. I don't think it's, it's not pedantic, as you know, you can't see these as separate fruits. But we do miss something if we don't see that actually, in the Greek, apparently, it's in the singular the fruit of the Spirit. And that's important because it's in contrast to the works of the flesh. Do you notice just above the works, the acts of the flesh? There's loads of them. It's like there are so many manifestations of sin in a human being's life. But when you look at any given human being, they don't show all, show all those works of the flesh equally, do they? Um, one person might be a lovely person, have real control on their temper, but then sin in some other very obvious ways or vice versa. But by describing this fruit as a singular fruit, Paul is saying there's a unity to this. When someone is walking in step with the Spirit, the fruit in its wholeness is meant to show in that Christian life. And this is important for me to hear because in my natural legalism and judgmentalism, what I start to think is I'm doing better than person X, Y, and Z because I know I don't tick all the boxes of all those aspects of the fruit, but I'm doing pretty well on self-control. 
I'm pretty, doing pretty well at joy. You know, I'm looking forward to being in heaven. I'm looking forward to glory. I'm doing pretty well on them. Yes, I know I don't forbear with people. I'm not patient with people. I know I lose my temper all the time. But on aggregate, I'm doing well. And Paul doesn't give us that excuse of on aggregate, I'm doing well. He's saying the, the singular fruit of the Spirit is all these different flavors, all these different aspects. And if you're walking in the step with the Spirit, they will all naturally start to grow. The whole delicious, attractive fruit. No, it's spiritual fruit. I know this is really obvious probably from what I've already said, but it needs to be stressed. There is a, there is a, a very human, natural version of these fruit of the Spirit. These aspects of the, there you go, I just did it. This fruit, these fruit of the Spirit, these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. To a large degree, you can fake them. You can act loving. You can act self-controlled. You can act joyful. Um, and actually, for people who aren't Christians, there, there can be a genuine degree of these things. You know, they really love their family. They really love their friends. But when we get to love next week, we're going to be asking what love looks like. And love looks like loving your enemies and those who hate you. You don't get that from the flesh. These are spiritual fruit. We need the Holy Spirit to grow this fruit in our lives. Note also that he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. One of the things that's come up in our survey when Dave sent out the survey about what we can cover on Equip is, can we do something on gifts of the Spirit? And we will at some point, and we really need to. But don't you find it interesting that Paul doesn't say to the Galatians, walk by the Spirit, and here's how you know you walk by the Spirit, because you've got the gift of teaching. You've got the gift of hospitality. You've got the gift of tongues or interpretation. You've got the gift of prophecy. doesn't say that. In fact, when you look at the first letter to the Corinthians, what you see is that that church was awash with the gifts of the Holy Spirit and they weren't loving one another. They weren't being patient with one another. So Paul doesn't go to gifts. If you want to know if you're walking by the power of the Holy Spirit of God this morning, don't look, first of all, for the gifts. You can misuse the gifts. You cannot misuse the fruit. If you've got real joy, real patience, real self-control, real faithfulness in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's only good. That will only bless people. Do you know you can take a gift, the gift of preaching, the gift of prophecy, and you can whack the church with it. You can divide the church with it. It's from the Holy Spirit. It's really from Him. He's given it to you to build up the church, but you can misuse it. You can't misuse the fruit. Isn't that wonderful? So don't look for gifts primarily. Don't look for power primarily. Don't for, look for experience primarily. Don't even look for positive emotions primarily because sometimes you can be wrestling with anxiety, depression, right? And not feeling those things you want to feel, but you can still be growing in the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit is at work in your life because you're surrendered to Him. So as we launch into this relationally descriptive list in the coming weeks, what we're meant to be asking is, not am I producing this fruit, but is the Holy Spirit producing this fruit in me? Remembering that these fruit, this fruit, <laughs> doesn't get me to glory, but it's the proof of true spiritual life in me. Right root means good fruit. This fruit is lovely, it's compelling, it's unifying, it's glorious, it's Jesus-like. And what do I do in the coming weeks when I see unevenness in my life? When I see yes. The self-control is there, but man, am I lacking in joy. What do I do? 
Well, here's what, a few things not to do when you look at your life and you see unevenness in the fruit of the Spirit. Don't just try harder. This is really dangerous. We can do this. We go, I'm, I'm not showing the fruit. I really need to just work harder at love. I need to work harder at self-control. The problem is there's an element of truth in that. But if you just think that way, that's not going to help. Because that will just lead to externals. That will just lead to external behaviours and not the actual fruit of the Spirit in us. Just try harder actually steers you back towards the scylla of legalism, doesn't it? Because what it's doing is it's bypassing the reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit. When I see I'm lacking these fruit and I'm, I'm showing the works of the flesh instead, I shouldn't say, oh man, I'm doing the works of the flesh, I need to work harder on this. No, it's the works of the flesh, I need to walk by the Spirit so that he produces these fruit in me. So don't just try harder. Don't go to the other extreme and say, because you're discouraged and you're not seeing the fruit as you would like to see them, well, it doesn't really matter. It so does. It so matters that we show these fruit for our joy and for the unity of the church and for the evangelism of the lost and so that people don't just hear about Jesus, they see Jesus in these sinners in the Bridge Church. Do, there's a few don'ts, here's a do, do talk to the Lord about it. Listen, seek to walk in lockstep with the Spirit and ask him to help you so that you produce the fruit. When I don't see aspects of the fruit, I seek to come close to the one who produces it. I consciously ask the Holy Spirit to steer. I surrender. I get back in step with him. I mean, it's a fair question then to ask how. Now, of course, I've got to be careful at this point, haven't I? Because I give you, if I give you lots of things you have to do to walk in step with the Spirit, I'm steering towards the sinner of legalism. But it's worth thinking about, isn't it, and suggesting some things, what that might look like in our lives. How do I walk in step with the Spirit? I think it's important to say this isn't a mega mystical thing. This isn't necessarily about you going away for a few hours and getting in a quiet place and spending two, three hours reading your Bible and communing with God. It's not about secret ceremonies or secret techniques. It's about doing the stuff of relationship with the triune God. What if, if you said to me this morning, I'm going for a walk with so-and-so from church this afternoon, what would that look like? I wouldn't expect you'd go for a walk and you'd walk 50 feet away from them and wouldn't talk to them or hang out with them. I'd expect you'd be talking to them. I'd expect you'd be listening to them. This means doing the stuff of relationship with a triune God that we've been reconciled to. It'll mean company. It'll mean conversation, talking to him in prayer, listening to him speak in his word, in all its poetry and its wisdom and its history, and yes, in its commands as well. In other words, and I yes, I'm going to use this phrase, and I know for some people in recent months it's been a lovely phrase, and for some people it's been a controversial phrase, but I'm going to say it. In other words, read your Bible and pray. See, right now, some of you are like, oh, I love that. And some of you are, oh, Matt, you've said all that lovely stuff and now you've been a legalist. This is the thing, isn't it? Where any given phrase, anything that is preached from the front and taught, you need to weigh it up. But when you hear something like read your Bible and pray, there's a legalistic way of hearing that. There's an antinomian way of hearing that. And then there's the relational way of hearing that. The legalistic way of hearing that, and maybe saying it actually, is read your Bible and pray every day and do plenty of it because it will earn you brownie points with God. 
Read your Bible, pray every day, because that's how you're a worthy Christian. Read your Bible, pray every day, because that's how you get to be a better Christian. And actually, that's a legalistic way of saying it and a legalistic way of understanding it. Because that's not why we read our Bibles and pray every day, or it shouldn't be, should it? But then the, the other reaction, the other way, is the antinomian, the licentious way of hearing that. Ah, oh, all that stuff about reading your Bible and praying every day, that's just legalism. It's mushy. It's, it's I, I don't need to do it. I can be a Christian by, I don't need to be in organized church. I don't need to be reading my Bible. I don't need to pray every day. I mean, can't pray every day, pray every week, surely. But to respond that way is mushy, mystical, me-centered. It sounds very spiritual, but actually it, me, it leads me away from the leading of the Holy Spirit who inspired the word of God and speaks to me that way. The Holy Spirit who wants me to talk to him and talk to the Son and talk to the Father in prayer. The way we need to be saying things like read our Bible, pray every day, the way we need to be hearing it is the relational way, the heart attitude and motivation is wanting to walk by the Spirit, to enjoy and be with him and see him grow his fruit in me. I find it interesting in Psalm chapter 1, just to give you one example of a, a part of the Old Testament that speaks about walking with God. Listen to this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Isn't that a wonderful, beautiful, relational picture, what it means to hear God's word speaking to us? I don't do it to get brownie points. I don't do it to lord it over you. I don't feel I have to do a certain amount of it in a certain way, but I just want to hear from him. Because that's one of the things that helps me walk with him. Verse 3 of Psalm 1 then says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. See, any part of the Bible, we can take it and we can hear it and we can hear it legalistically. We can hear it in an antinomian way or we can hear it the right way. Which is God saying, do these things to walk in step with me by my spirit. That might actually mean us doing less, not doing more. Creating time and creating rhythms in our lives so that we're talking to God and listening to him. And the wonderful thing is, I can do this when I'm rolling out of bed in the morning and say, Holy Spirit, help me walk with you. As I'm loading the dishwasher, actually I'm not allowed to load the dishwasher in our house, but in theory, as I'm loading the dishwasher... Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring this psalm that I've got in, in my head this morning that you're speaking to me through as you're changing a nappy, as you're driving to work. Holy Spirit, please grow your fruit in me. Help me to walk in rhythm with you and to hear from you. Help me to talk to you so that I'm walking by you and so that these fruit come. I mean, and as I try and do that, I, it may be that I hear God saying through Galatians 5, the Holy Spirit saying through Galatians 5, well, Matt, you're really joyful about heaven, but you're not patient with your brother. You're not self-controlled with that temper. But I won't just hear him see, saying that, you see. I'll also hear him saying, lean closer. Listen to me as I guide you. Let me guide you as the good harbour pilot that I am. And I will grow this fruit in you that will make you more like Jesus, that will bless the church, and that will be attractive to the world. Let's pray for just that, shall we? Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in response to your word and in the name of Jesus, we come to you now. Uh, we thank you 
that each one of us here who's a Christian, who has simply trusted in Jesus and his life and his death on the cross, that the Holy Spirit of the living God dwells within us. We don't understand that, Lord, but we believe it's wonderfully true. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will help us today and in the coming days to walk in step with you. And that as we do that, you are showing us in your word that you will grow this wonderful fruit in us that shows that we have life, that we are rooted in the right place, in this unrooted, rootless world, that we're rooted in the right place, in the right person. Lord, we long to show this fruit. We know we, know to, we need to do our part in cultivating the soil, so to speak, in keeping close to you, but it needs you, Holy Spirit, to grow this fruit in us. Will you be doing it in the weeks ahead, we pray? Will you keep us, Lord, from the extremes of legalism on the one hand and an anything-goes license on the other and lead us in increasingly into this life of happy holiness, joyful obedience to you, obedience to you not to earn credit with you or stay in credit with you because you've done it all, Lord, but obedience to you because we love you. Those words of yours, Lord Jesus, are ringing in our ears this morning, and I pray that they'll keep ringing in our ears in the weeks ahead. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Well, Lord, we love you, and we want to obey your commandments and walk close to you, and we need your Spirit's help to do it. Give us that help, we pray. Father, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.